Now, what you want to do ultimately is open it up to Mark chapter 16, although in the beginning of this, you're going to kind of just get gunned down by a whole bunch of verses. Um, so I challenge you, be ready to write stuff down, because uh, this is really, well, obviously this is everything. So we're going to go right to the Lord in prayer. Will you pray with me, please? Oh God, it is so true. Oh, how great it is to be loved by you. And we do pray you'd breathe your life now. God, I adore you. I thank you so much for being such a wonderful, amazing, awesome God. And on this day, Lord... It amazes me. Outside of these walls, there are people going about it as if it's another day, just any other day. And here we are in here, gathering to celebrate the most important event in history. And I pray today, Lord, that things would ra- that every one of us would be radically, radically touched. Lord, that your Holy Spirit would would embrace each of us and captivate us in your word. And Lord, today, may we get it better and clearer than we've ever gotten it. And I pray, Lord, that you would redeem every second. Please have your way. We commit this time to you, Lord. Do not let me go uh, in message too long or too deep, Lord, but rather in perfect depths and lengths. Lord, let this be now. Your time where your word bursts open and comes alive and we get it. We really, really get it. And we have so much fun in your word now. So God, please do your work. Immerse me in your Holy Spirit. Come upon me, God, and speak fluent us now in a way that we get it. So Lord, have your way. In Jesus' name. Amen. I would say today is that when any, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Some of you have heard that for quite a while. If you cannot take the word and told all things and test all things by the word of God, you'll be led by the person with the greatest passion or vigor. And often that can be a very, very dangerous, well, it'll always be a dangerous thing. You have to have something unchanging and absolute to test it by. Let's start with this. Let's say Siuti, for whatever, for whatever reason, decides to walk into Buckingham Palace. Now, Siuti walks into Buckingham Palace. He demands a room. As he demands a room, he also demands that he should have the right to reappoint the archbishop, drive as fast as he wants in any car without a license plate, and sit at the Queen's table for dinner. Now, people would start to ask, excuse me, are you a Windsor? You don't necessarily look like a Windsor. Are you a Windsor? And he says, no, 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 but I've been, on, I've been on a tour in Buckingham. I've actually been there a couple times now. And because I've been there a couple times, shouldn't I have a right to sit at the Queen's table and just start to be able to take the benefits of a family member? He says, no. You can't make up your own rules. You've got to be part of the family to experience the benefits of the family. 
As he walks out of there, still in his delusion, he's joined by a few friends. Let's just say Luke joins him, Shamar joins him, Bruno joins him. Now the four of them decide that they're going to go and they walk over to 10 Downing Street. As they walk over to 10 Downing Street, now they go and they, have, they stand at the garden and they demand 300 pounds plus travel and restaurant subsidies. Uh, because, and they say, well, why in the world would you possibly ask for those things? And they say, well, that is the day's pay for a House of Lords member. And of course, necessarily, the question would ensue, are you part of the House of Lords? You don't necessarily look like guys from the House of Lords. You're, by the way, about one-tenth the age, and where are those cute little powder wigs? For which they say, well, no, none of us have actually done that, but we've been on the tour a few times. We've actually walked through and we've seen sort of how things work and we've visited the House of Commons and we're clearly not common, so we figured we would be lords. And with that, we demand then the right and pay for that. Well, the problem is they say, well, if you don't work there, you don't get paid there. You say, well, we've decided these were our rules. They say, oh, you can decide whatever you want. You can decide you're a chicken, but that doesn't make you a chicken. In the end of it all, just because you decide you want to make up your rules, there are rules that stand outside of those things. And unless you're a member of the family, you don't get a benefits of the family. And in the same way, unless you actually are actually under its employ, you really don't get a paycheck there. Now, why is that so important? Because to be honest, religion falls into both of those categories so regularly that it's almost uncommon for it not to. On one side, you have the person who actually doesn't uh, have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, but demands heaven. Somewhere in all of that, they really haven't said yes to Jesus' gift at the cross. But somewhere down the line, they've been to a church. So they've been on tour. I mean, they weren't really there to interface necessarily. They were kind of there to take. So in the end of it all, they kind of saw it. You know, they, they passed around the hat. They, you know, and they were like, well, whatever, you know, whatever that's for. You know, and maybe they were like, well, those bread things weren't very tasty and you really don't get much to drink, you know. And, and somewhere in all of that, they kind of, well, I kind of know. They sang some songs. They knelt. They stood. They fight, fight, fight. A guy came out in a robe or he didn't or whatever. But somewhere in it, I kind of went and visited. And that should be good enough, right? And these are the rules I've decided because according to my own logic, I should be able to have the benefits of the family. Well, standing before God with your own rules isn't going to get you to win. And somewhere down the line, the, the weirder part about it is, in the case of Siotti, in the beginning of this, the only difference is, is the queen is, well, unless you know something I don't, uh, she's never really offered to adopt Siotti, at least as much again as we're aware. But our God in heaven is offered to adopt every one of us. So the difference is even more grave. Because when we stand before God and we actually say, well, I demand for you to let me in and I want to be able to have a place at the table and I want to have eternity in this house. This is all heaven. It should be, that should be fine with me. It isn't just like God's like, excuse me, have we met? But it's beyond that. I offered adoption to you and you said no. So somewhere down the line, even though I offered you this great grace and kindness, still in the midst of all of that, you actually chose to write your own rules, but they don't apply here. And we go, okay, well, I'm a Christian. I've said yes to Jesus. I'm pretty safe with that. Well, then what about the second one? It's somewhere down the line. It seems like if we just think we're kind of decent people now. Okay, I've said yes to Jesus. I'm part of the family. I go to church every once in a while. Things are cool. And then I read texts where the master hands out gifts, talents to people, and he calls them back and asks, what have you done with those things? And of course, we're familiar with the story. One comes back, and of course, the return is great. For which then he says, well done, good and faithful servant. 
You were faithful with a little. I'll make you faithful. I'll, I'll now make you Lord over much. Here's, some, here's a bunch of cities. Now enter into the joy of your Lord. And there's another guy who was given a little bit less, but he still got quite, he actually doubled his return, and the response was still the same. Well done, good and faithful servants. You were faithful with a little, now I'll make you, make you Lord over much. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Then it was that third guy. Remember that guy? It's like if this was a melodrama, the moment you mentioned him, we all go, hiss. You know? and, and in that case, he's like, well, I knew you were kind of a shrewd and harsh guy, so I just took it and I buried it in the world and I didn't really do anything with it. And the, the, the master looks at him with amazement and he thinks, well, what on earth are you? You could have at least put this in the bank. You could have at least put this someplace where you knew it would bring about some dividend, but you hid the whole thing and somehow you think, I'm going to say well done and good and faithful servant. You are actually an evil and lazy servant is what he says. The reason I say that is, is so many of us, and again, I, I'm, I'm just trying to be faithful to the Word of God, that when we stand before God and it's like, yeah, okay, I've accepted the gift of Jesus, but I really don't want to do anything with my life. I, I mean, God, you've given me these things, and you know, they're just kind of for me. I'm going to bury them in the world. But, I, but then I read that text, and I just think God's going to say, well done, good and faithful servant. Well, then we're showing up at 10 Downing Street, demanding the pay for a house of Lord that we really have never done a day of service. Now, I'm not here trying to guilt us into anything. The problem is, is you're really missing it. Now, look at now some of you, you may love watching sports. I've gotten to an age now where I appreciate watching sports, but in the beginning, I, I never liked to watch them because I loved to play them. And you know that the moment that you watch them, there's something inside of you that says, man, I wish I was out there doing that. And I'm getting to an age now where, and I've had, you know, 27 plus years of my wife saying, don't you come back hurt like that again. You know, where now I hear those voices repeat repeatedly in my head. And now I kind of repatriate it, but I, I get to that point and I realize that if you kind of the one and you watch somebody serve the Lord, you realize there should be a part of us spiritually that goes, man, I wish I was out in the field doing that. Because we can't just make the rules and assume somehow that if we're confident in the rules and we're, we're somehow convinced ourselves those are the rules, that God's going to bend. He's not going to bend. So I want to start, and I'm going to come hard and quick here, about what the Bible really says about why the death and resurrection is so important in the first place. Now, maybe you know this. If so, then let this be good review. If you don't, let me just say that I want to be the faithful pastor that tells you, at least with whatever talents God's given me, I want to spend them right. And I want to be able to say to you, this is what the Bible says, and it's not up for negotiation. It isn't like God's going to go, well, this is a new generation. Let's bend on that a little bit. It really isn't. And so let me just start with this. What the Bible says about man. Psalm 14, verse 3. And, and by the way, that also pulls out in, in Psalm 53, verses 1 through 3, and then and reiterated again in Romans 10, 3, 10. Uh, Romans 3.10, I'm sorry, says there's no one good. There's no one who does good. There's no one righteous. No, not one. No one really seeks to understand. And nobody, by the way, even seeks after God. According to Scripture, it tells us nobody's really chasing after God. And you're like, well, I hear people and like, well, I'm just a seeker. And there are churches. There are seeker-sensitive churches. We're going to be sensitive to the seeker. But then I read this and I think, if nobody seeks after God, well, what are they seeking after? Well, you realize... What we're all seeking after are the things of God without Him. And we can be, by the way, we could be guilty of that as Christians as well. The idea is, is, is God a means to the end, or is He the end? Do I want the peace of Jesus, or do I want Jesus to be my peace? Do I want the love of Christ, or do I want to find that love in Christ? Because they're very different things. Now, I'm so thankful that in my relationship with my wife, I'll probably bring that up a few times, that I don't believe I'm a means to an end of just about anything, to be honest. Uh, and I just realized that it's because 
I married her for a relationship with her. That's the point. I didn't think, well, if I could marry her, maybe I could get in good with her folks, and they have a house in Palm Springs somewhere, you know. That'd be nice on one of those days when it's 49 degrees or 3 degrees less than the melting point of a rock or something. It'd be great to be out there for that. I need to sweat. You know, I mean, the whole point of it is, is the Bible tells us that we, in and of ourselves, are not inherently good. You were not born a decent person that got mucked up by the world around you. Who do you think mucked up the world in the first place? People like you before you. Now, you go, well, that's really bad for my self-esteem. Can I just say, what we really need is God-esteem. Because if you realize, no matter who you are, God loves you and wants you anyways, you can stop trying to change who you are in the sense of trying to put on, if you will, sort of spiritual makeup. And you can actually come to God clean and honest and say, God, if you love me this way, then make me what you want. But let me tell you what it says about our, our merit. Don't worry, it's not just all about us, but we've got to start there. It tells us in Romans 3.23 that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It's important to note, by the way, that doesn't matter who it is. Me included, the Pope. It doesn't matter who he is or she. It tells us in Romans 6.23 that the wages of that sin is death, a separation between us and God. As a matter of fact, Isaiah told us that over 700 years ago in Isaiah 59.2 when, when he told us that our iniquities have separated us from God. But my favorite part about it is when God speaks about how we try to get right with them. And there's going to be one of two ways. Either you're going to try to get right with God through your own works. You're aware of the fact that if you try to get right with God through your own self, if you're trying to be righteous through yourself, that's what we call self-righteousness. Kind of got that, right? And that's everything else. If you perform enough, do enough, pray enough, make your hajj, do you know, whatever, do your gifts, and your, well, then maybe that's enough. Well, you're still trying to make yourself righteous. You're aware of that, right? But let me tell you what God says. And, and I love the fact that God doesn't have a problem giving us the most vivid pictures. So I would almost say, pardon me for how graphic this is, but this is the word of God. And it says, for what it's worth, in Isaiah 64, 6, that we are all like an unclean thing, and all of our righteousness is as filthy rags. Now understand, the term for filthy rags there in the Hebrew, literally, if I can just dare say it, is dirty menstrual cloths. Now imagine, if you will, you, were, you messed up with somebody. You said something and you offended them, you hurt them, and then you went and you found a bunch of dirty menstrual cloths and you wanted to give that as a peace offering to them. Now what person in their right mind would go, oh, well now that you've given me that, let's just be friends again. There's an insanity behind that, and that's the way God sees us trying to make ourselves right with him especially when he's offering it himself. So what the Bible says about man, we're inherently evil people. What the Bible says about our own merit is it's really like dirty menstrual cloths. But let me tell you what the Bible says about God's heart. In Ezekiel 33, verse 11, God says, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked would turn from his way and live. God takes no delight in watching a wicked man die. He doesn't want to send anyone to hell. And people would ask, how could a loving God send someone to hell? And I would say, I don't think a loving God sends anyone to hell. I think you send yourself. He put the cross in the way. You want to walk around that. Don't blame God. That is like the person who actually served you the greatest meal and then you died because you continued to starve. But if the food was before you, don't blame the cook. It tells us in 1 Timothy verse, chapter 2, verse 3, that, or actually verse 4, it says that God desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Now, whether you like it or not, what Scripture says is God wants you saved. And not just you, your cranky neighbor and the person that's down the street that walks the dog that poops in front of your yard. You know, all of those people he wants them saved. That crazy guy on the bus you encountered this morning on your way here. That nasty person and that politician that you think, oh, that person should rot. God wants them all saved. 
As a matter of fact, in Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9, it says that the Lord is not slack, as some count slackness, but he's long-suffering, not willing any would perish, but all would come to repentance. Now that tells me something. Now, if you've accepted the gift of Jesus Christ, I want you to know, nobody wanted you saved more than he did. But if you've never accepted the gift of Jesus Christ, I want you to know God certainly wants it more than you do. What the Bible says about God's hope in that is that in Isaiah 43, verse 11, it tells us that I am the Lord, God speaking, and he says, and besides me, there's no Savior. It is important to note that what God tells us is there are not a lot of options. There's one, and it's him and him alone. You may not like that, but if what we deserve is eternal damnation, any answer at all outside of that should amaze us. Let's just be honest. I mean, the audacity of us to think that somewhere we stand guilty. We are the offending party before a perfect and holy God who created us in a relationship with him. And then God sends his son to die on a cross for us, to pay the price. And we look and we go, I don't like those terms. I want to earn it myself. What slap in the face that would be to a loving God? I'll tell you what. If I even let my hit, my, one of my children even get mildly hurt to save you, and then you said that wasn't enough, boy, you wouldn't want to be around me at that moment or from that point forward. In Exodus chapter 3, when God spoke to Moses, ultimately about going and taking out the people, it tells us that God had to come down to deliver them. Though he was going to use Moses, though God was going to use a man, God was coming down because deliverance only comes by God coming down to do so. In Ezekiel 34, when God passes judgment on the bad shepherds of the day, he says, I myself will come down. I will search for my sheep. I will seek them out. I will seek out my sheep and deliver them, God says. So God must come down as Savior to deliver, to search out, to be that good shepherd. You can understand why then in John 10 when Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, not a good shepherd. He says, I am the good shepherd. People connecting the dots know he was claiming to be God. Because God said, I am the good shepherd that's going to come down and deliver my sheep. Now look at, no matter what rules you want to make up, this is what Scripture says. And I'm not picking verses where you could whip it out of context. The verse, the verse itself is standalone where it tells us, if it says God desires all men to be saved, you go, I wonder what that means. I don't think you have to be brilliant to figure it out. Let me tell you what the Bible says about Jesus. First Timothy 2, verse 5, it says that there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. There's only one person that will stand between us and the wrath of God. And it isn't like you have a lot of options. It's Jesus. It's the only one. That's what the Bible says. So if we want to say, I think Jesus is an option, we stand against the very book God wrote to tell us our option. It tells us, in, well, for what it's worth, uh, in 1 John chapter 4, verse 14, God tells us, well, John tells us that he has seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son as Savior of the world. Not as a Savior, but the Savior, the only one. And I remind you, God himself says, I am the Lord, and there is no Savior but me. God himself has to be the one who comes down to deliver. And then it tells us, by the way, this is what Scripture says. We love John 3.16, right? That's sort of the paycheck. You know, God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him wouldn't perish but have everlasting life. And God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him would be saved. But then we get to 3.18 and it gets a little less comfortable because it says he who believes in him is not condemned. But he who does not believe is condemned already. For he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. Do you realize what God says? God says Jesus is your only option. You could be offended all you want by that. But let me just say it this way. If Marcia showed up at the doctor's office or Maureen showed up at the doctor's office 
I'll, we'll play with Maureen for a moment here. Maureen showed up at the doctor's office, and the doctor says, I'm really sorry to tell you this, Maureen. You're a lovely gal. You make wonderful cakes. She's a baker, by the way, and, and they're really lovely. But I've got to tell you this. You actually have an inoperable operable tumor. We can't remove this thing uh, because if we do, it'll take your life. It's sitting on one of your lungs right now, and it's coming, and it's taking over you. And Marcy, of, or Marcy, I'm sorry, Marcy, Maureen has this opportunity at that moment to freak out. And she sweats and pants and, and cries, all the things that would be natural at a moment like that. But then the doctor turned and said, but I do want you to know, I do have a solution. There is a particular medicine that could be given with a single dose of it, you could be absolutely delivered. If the reality of the first part of the diagnosis really sets in, any answer after that will, will produce fantastic gratitude, wouldn't it? Do you know why people don't say yes to Jesus? Because the reality of the diagnosis is never really set in. People don't realize the terminal condition of them spiritually. And because they don't, consider that. They stand in this particular place where they would stand guilty before God. And they're like, yeah, but I think I could just make up my own rules. It doesn't work on earth. How in the world do we think we can work with God? It tells us, by the way, in 1 Timothy 6.16, that Jesus alone has immortality. Only God holds infinity. You want something done temporarily, you can get it done by men. But you want something done permanently, only God can do it. Let me tell you what Jesus says about himself. In John 14.6, many of you are familiar with the verse, I am the way, the truth, notice definite articles, the life, and then he says, nobody comes to the Father except through me. Now, like it or not, it's what Scripture says. Like it or not, it's what Jesus said. If you said Jesus was a good teacher, I'd say, well, then you better listen to his teachings. This is what he taught. So Jesus didn't say, and I'm just going to call it out for what it is. He never said Muhammad would be an option. You'd say, well, he hasn't shown up yet. Jesus says, it doesn't matter. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. Buddha is not an option. Being a decent person is not a good option. Is not an option. It doesn't matter what you want to make up. It doesn't matter how fantastic. Well, I think we get reincarnated. The Bible says it's appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment. That's just what Scripture says. Look at, don't take it up with me. Deal with the author. He's the one who told you. I'm just the mouthpiece. The question is, are we willing to be honest enough with the, with the diagnosis so that we'd be willing enough to be thankful with the answer? And are we willing to love the people around us enough to be able to share that? Matter of fact, this is what Jesus said in John eight twenty four. This is, if you do not believe that I am he, you'll die in your sins. Now you have to realize, Jesus was loving enough to tell you the truth. What the cross was, was a place of total sacrifice. <clears throat> Jesus knew that because when the rich marketer came up to him and he said they had kept all the commandments, but then Jesus said, there's one thing you lack. Go and sell whatever you have, give it to the poor. Notice he didn't say, give it to me. And you'll have treasure in heaven and then come take up your cross and follow me. That guy knew because he walked away quite sad that it was a place of great sacrifice. He knew that. It tells us in Philippians chapter 2 that Jesus himself being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. And we know this. The cross is a place of total sacrifice. We know that. And because we know that, we know that that's the, when we start talking about the cross, there's something inside of us that goes, I don't want that. Why would I want that kind of sacrifice? 
I mean, there are a lot of people who undergo chemotherapy, and I'm not one of those kind of people that's a big promoter of something or something not on a situation like that, but they know that there are a lot of prices to be paid for that. You lose your hair, uh, you know, don't ask, I didn't get it, it just happened naturally. Uh, and, you know, it's like, and there are a lot of things, it's a horrible experience, a horrible experience, but the benefits of it are far outweigh the horrible experience at the moment. It was rough for a moment, but let me tell you, in the end of it all, you'll be thankful. On the other side of it, the same thing happens, to be honest, with childbirth. And I was that weird, you can compare the two, because giving birth, by the way, now I'm told, obviously I've never given birth, yeah, you can end that rumor, but I've been there while it's happened, and... I can tell you, as profound as it is, it is definitely not the most pleasant experience for the person giving birth. However, there are an awful lot of babies out there. And there are some people that have, like, so many children at this point, I don't know if they have to start calling them numbers. Or you have someone like George Foreman who names all of his kids George so he doesn't have to forget. And the reason I say that is just because something is unpleasant doesn't mean it's not right. The cross is a place of shame. Hebrews 12, 2. It tells us that our Jesus, by the way, the author and finisher of our faith for the joy that was set before him, that's you, by the way, endured the cross, scorning its shame. He knew that it was a place of shame. And we know that too because he tells us to take up our cross and follow him. Interesting, that cross, according to John 19, I believe it's verse 25, was the place where Jesus actually assigned responsibility from John of, of his mother to John. It's a place of responsibility. And here's the cool part. Have you ever lied to yourself about being wrong? And then you finally come to and actually come to and be honest about it. There's something wonderfully cleansing about that. Living a lie is one of the most unhealthy and depleting things a person can have. And the cross is the end of our enmity. It is the place where our guilt was paid. And we know that. Even though it's considered foolish and offensive and worthy of persecution. Uh, for those, of course, who are perishing. But on the other side of it, it tells us that the handwriting of requirements, by the way, was paid. When Jesus died on that cross, that's Colossians 2.14. And it tells us that he reconciled both, that's Jew and Gentile, to the Father through the cross, putting to death the enmity, and that's in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 16. But see, the problem is, is that the cross is only half the story. On this day, on the day we call Easter, or I would prefer to call Resurrection Day, we don't celebrate Jesus dying on the cross. Ironically enough, that's called Good Friday. It is good, by the way, only for those who receive that gift, if you think about it, but it certainly wasn't good for Jesus on that day. Except for what he was getting. He was getting us. But on this day, we celebrate the second part. What this day tells us, that resurrection, it is important to recognize. Jesus told us in John eleven twenty five that he was the resurrection and the life. This new life we talk about, he is it. He doesn't just give it. And again, Jesus isn't a means to the end. He's the end of it. He is that new life that I'm looking for. And of course, those apostles gave witness and preached and testified of that resurrection. That's the point of it. But there's a really important verse, and I, don't want, I, I pray that it would be etched into your heart and mind as it would be mine, and that's Romans chapter 1, verse 4, because it tells us that Jesus himself was declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by that resurrection of the dead. Now understand that, because there's a whole group of people out there that are very violent and very strong on this opinion, which, by the way, happens to be a false opinion according to Scripture, that God had no Son. Might I say, God has an awful lot of sons, and I happen to be one of them. I'm so thankful my God's into adoption. How about you? But it tells us that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God because the resurrection proved it. The resurrection proved what a son looks like, and that is that death no longer has power over him. That's the beauty of it. Now, 
forgive me if you will for taking this sort of lengthy trip for it because I have to do that before we actually go quickly through these quick stories that we're going to get in Mark because I want you to recognize that's what makes the resurrection so important for you as well as what demonstrates that we are actually sons of God, that we are children of God, is our resurrected life now, the life that is so different from the life before. As a matter of fact, this is what Paul would say to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, I believe it's verse 17, where he said, if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. Do you know what that means? It means, boy, you have the stupidest faith. As a matter of fact, he says you're still in your sins. And then in verse 19 of that same chapter, he says, if in this life and only in this life we have a hope in Christ, that's it then we of all men are most pitiable, or we might say pitiful. If really all we really think is that there's this life and nothing beyond this and there's no real resurrection, we're the most pitiful people on the planet. Because our entire hope is rested upon the fact of a relationship with somebody who rose from the dead. Now, let's get to this story and see how it plays out. In Mark chapter 16, he doesn't develop it like we would get it, by the way, in Matthew, Luke, and John, where the stories are really amplified and we kind of get more of the narrative. He kind of gives us an overview. But if you take a look at it with me, it tells us this in Mark chapter 16, verse 9. Now when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had cast out seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him, and as they mourned and wept, And when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they did not believe. That's our first of our three people, Mary Magdalene, or three characters, if you will. The Bible tells us, by the way, in John chapter 20, the story, first 18 verses. Mary Magdalene obviously has a very intimate relationship with God. And it's important to recognize that there are some people out there, because their mind is so warped, and the Bible tells us, to those that are depraved, nothing is pure. But to the pure mind, all things are pure. That I read about Jesus having a relationship with a woman here and there's nothing romantic about it other than the fact it's beautiful that he delivered her. Now look, at if you had been, in essence, completely dumbstruck and a complete puppet of hell itself and you were delivered, I think you would be hanging real close too, wouldn't you? But it tells us, by the way, and it's important to note in our first story, that Mary had gone to the tomb. But there are those out there right now to try to say that Jesus wound up actually shacking up with Mary and having a few kids and settling down. And to be honest, it's funny, but it's, I love to take it beyond that. Obviously, Jesus, from his public ministry, before he met Mary, to the time that he died on the cross, would never have had time to get alone with her. I mean, obviously, the whole story is, is, is senseless. But the whole point of it is, for a person that wants to bring this crazy story, I like to ask, well, if Jesus didn't have that time before he died, he must have, re- must have resurrected, according to your story, because it would have been the only time he'd have had time to do something like that. So what are you going to do with the resurrected Jesus? I think that's much more important. But Mary is at the tomb, and she's crying. And she is weeping with absolutely no concept that Jesus is alive. We know that because the term she uses are past tense in terms like laid him. She is told by an angel... Mary, well, actually, he doesn't use her name. He just says, what are you looking for? Jesus of Nazareth? He's not here. Remember, he told you we would raise from the dead. Come and take a look for yourself. Loose paraphrase. Again, see it for yourself. Now go tell the disciples. And Peter, by the way. Go tell him. And it tells us after all of that, somewhere Mary sits back down and she's crying. Jesus appears behind her and he starts to talk to her. Why are you crying? She thought he was the gardener. And she says, sir, 
they've taken, at first she says, they've taken my Lord and I don't know where they've laid him. Notice there's no possibility in her head that Jesus just got up and walked up on his own. She watched him die. And then she turns to the garden and says, Sir, if, if you're the person who laid him somewhere, could you just show him to me? Could you bring me to him? She's staring Jesus in the face and she can't even tell it's him. And then he says, Mary. And somewhere in the way that he said her name, it all made sense. When God spoke her name, as he told us in John 10, he's the good shepherd and he calls his sheep by name. Somewhere in it, it wasn't that God was just this God over this big institution. He was a God of people that he called by name. And I remind you, he desires no one to perish. At the moment, she's like, Rabboni. Then she goes and tells these guys. That's what it tells us here. She goes and tells the guys that had been with Jesus the longest. And they don't believe her. But let's be honest. Probably, I mean, because she had been from Magdalene, by the way, isn't just like a surname. Magdala is a place. Magdala means tower, and it's actually just south, of, if you will. It's, it's roughly about 9 o'clock on the clock of the Sea of Galilee. And I imagine that many of these people may have known her before she had been delivered. So she was a crazy, I mean, what do you think a woman's like, possessed by seven demons? So when she comes back, I mean, after Jesus dies and she comes back and starts telling you this crazy story, wouldn't you have just thought, uh-oh, it's all come back, hasn't it? It would be hard to believe that, not because she was a woman, but because of the state she was before she met Jesus. And now with Jesus apparently gone, it would just seem to make more sense. But I want you to know something. It doesn't matter where you came from. When God gets a hold of you, he alone has immortality. He does things for good. I never fear going back to the person I was. Because you know what God did in kindness? He slayed that guy and rose up a new one. It's not like there's no one to go back to. In the first case, though Mary, and hear me on this, though Mary personally encountered Jesus, she told the, the people who were closest to Jesus and they didn't believe her. Then, it says, verse 12, after that he appeared in another form to two of them. Hey, what's up? After that, he appeared in another form to two of them as they walked and went into the country. And they went and told it to the rest, but they didn't believe them either. And our second situation, we pull it out, by the way, from Luke chapter 24. I believe it's roughly verses 13 to 35. In that situation, of course, we know one of the guys by name. His name is Cleopas. There's argument over who the second guy is. Obviously, God doesn't say, so it's senseless to spend time arguing over something God didn't tell us. But two of these guys are heading out of Jerusalem after Jesus' death. They, I think there's an assumption if they kill Jesus, they're going to kill all of his followers, and Cleopas was a follower, as was the other guy. So they're heading out seven miles away from Jerusalem. They can't do that on the Sabbath, because if you take anything basically beyond the, the amount of olives, well, that's actually breaking Sabbath law. Well, now it's Sunday and Sabbath's over. And as the Sabbath's over, they're making their way. They're hightailing it out of there. And they're going to a place called Emmaus. Seven miles away, they figure that's about as safe as they could be at the moment. And Jesus shows up and we read in another form. What the heck does that mean? He, was, he looked different. 
And Jesus walks up, and it's a beautiful story because in this story, Jesus walks up to the guys as two guys would be walking down. I remind you, they're fearful of getting arrested. And they're fleeing. And Jesus just kind of comes up to them and says, hey, guys, how's it going? And they're like, what, you've been in a cave or something? I mean, do you even realize what's been going on? And Jesus goes, oh, what things? And that tells me something. Just because God asks a question does not mean that God does not know the answer. But he holds you accountable to your answer nonetheless. Well, there was this man, Jesus, mighty. He was a prophet, mighty in word and in deeds. And we had hoped he was going to deliver Israel. Now, you get the idea when they said had hoped that it was over now. There was no more hoping He's like, well, we're still kind of hoping, but he's dead. And he goes, and weirder yet, these gals came and told us that, that Jesus was alive. I mean, how weird is that? And you can see Jesus going, wow, so what they told you too? And you didn't believe that either, huh? And we read that Jesus had this amazing Bible study, starting with Moses and walks them through the entire Old Testament. What an amazing thing that must have been. Could you imagine that Bible study? You think I go along? Imagine starting at Moses and working your way through it. Seven miles, the average person walks three miles an hour. Work that out. That's two hours and 20 minutes. They finally, it tells us, he meets them in the road and they get to a mouse. And there, it's evening now. And Jesus makes it look like he was going to keep going. And they're like, why don't you come and join us? They bring him in. And Jesus gives the traditional blessing at the breaking of bread. Of bread. And it is at that moment that they become aware that it was Jesus. Here they are talking. In both of the cases, the women, Mary specifically, and these two men are talking with them and they don't even realize it. Could you imagine? In the first case, Mary recognized it when he called her name. In the second case, these two men recognized it when he broke the bread. It was at the breaking of the bread, I remind you, it was Jesus who had said that he was the bread of life. But he had also told us that we were to take and eat at the Last Supper, at that Passover, just three nights before. And that his, his body was real food. And then when he broke that bread and said, take this and eat, this is my body broken for you, we get it. It tells us then Then he appeared in another form again. That's verse 12. There's two of them as they walked and went into the country. But notice it says, so they went back. They went and told the rest and it says, and they didn't believe them either. Those same spiritual giants, those apostles, the A-team, have now listened to the testimony of this woman who had been delivered and had seen Jesus. And then these two men, who apparently probably mocked the women too at that point prior, but now have left. And as they left, they came back and said, no, we actually, we saw him too. And at this point, the, the, the 11 of them, I mean, Judas is hung himself, they kind of look and they're like, you, you crazy. And then it says in verse 14 that he appeared to the 11. Not only to Mary, not only to the two, but to the 11. So he appeared to the 11 as they sat at the table and he rebuked their unbelief. And their hardness of heart because they could not believe those who had seen him after he had risen. Now, it's interesting. We go back to the Gospel of John, chapter 20, for this, because it's interesting because actually, though it's 11, Jesus actually first appeared to 10 and one of them wasn't there. The one that wasn't there was Thomas. And even after, that means Thomas 
saw Mary tell him the story. The two guys come back and tell him the story. And then he actually had to hear the other ten of them and go, no, we all saw Jesus. And Thomas is like, y'all crazy. Unless I can stick my hand in his, his nail wounds. I'm in that hole in his side, sticking my hand there. I'm never going to believe this. Thomas was, by the way, an honest skeptic. He was not a cynic. There's a very big difference. A skeptic says, I need the facts. A cynic says, I don't care about the facts. I've made up my mind. I'm just going to pretend to be open-minded. Big difference. So when someone says, I'm a skeptic, I like to ask, are you a skeptic really or are you a cynic? And Jesus shows up and he looks and he goes, what's wrong with you guys? Do you realize how hard your heart is to not hear this information and change? The most amazing thing is the next verse. Our final verse, by the way, it tells us here, at least for this, he tells us in verse 15, he said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And here's the funny part. Put all of this together. It starts with this. It starts with the fact that there was this woman who really loved Jesus, saw him alive, didn't even know it, wouldn't even believe it until he called her name, and then she believed it. Though an angel said it, she didn't believe the angel. And then the women came and told the guys, and they didn't believe the women. Then these two guys showed up, and they didn't believe these guys either. And then Jesus shows up and goes, you guys, look at how many people have told you and you wouldn't believe. And he goes, now I want you guys to go out, and I want you to go preach the gospel. Now what do you think we think is going to happen? I mean, what role do we get to play? I mean, when people who genuinely saw Jesus physically right in front of them went and told guys who had been with them the longest and they didn't believe them, and Jesus says, now it's your turn. Now I'm going to go to a total stranger and I'm going to tell them, hey, by the way, I've seen Jesus. He's changed my life. I mean, after all, isn't that kind of the cool part about this? And, they're going to, and I'm going to expect them to believe? When if anybody was predisposed, Jesus had been telling them over and over and over again he was going to rise from the dead and they didn't believe him. Now I'm going to show up to someone else and assume that that's going to actually convince them. How in the world do I think I can do it better than these guys? Because now I want you to go. And by the way, it's beautiful because in the tense, the idea of it is not, I want you to focus on going. He goes, you're going to go. Don't, don't worry about the fact of going. That's not the part you make a choice in. The part you make a choice in is whether you're going to preach or not. No matter where you go, Make the choice to preach the gospel. So what's the difference between us now and them then? Well, first of all, I want to remind you, Jesus is declared to be the Son of God by the resurrection of the dead. With power, by the way. The very testimony that we'll have is a resurrected life. A very different life. Do you remember when you were that addict? Whatever it was you were addicted to. The gossip, the hatred, the bitterness, the violence, the drugs, the pornography, whatever it was. Do you remember when you were helpless? Do you remember when you were out of control? Do you remember? I look around the room and I think there are some people around here. They could have, let's say if we were going to play the role of Mary Magdalene, I could think of people in this room maybe to pick before. You look back and you probably think that would have been me. There were others that were just fearful, like the guys fleeing. Maybe that would have been your story. Fearful. Controlled by that, that emptiness that comes with it. That black hole of seeing no future in it. We consumed at the moment of the what ifs. Jesus had said, by the way, in the Gospel of John, when the Holy Spirit comes, He will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Convict. The word literally means to convince. So apparently, he hadn't come to that point. 
had he come at that point, Jesus would have said, as he's come, this is what he's doing. But he has come now. And the difference between now and then is that when I get to share the gospel, the Holy Spirit's going to do the convincing. I don't have to do it. And somehow we spend all of our time trying to convince people that they need to be better arguers, as if we could argue someone into the kingdom, instead of trusting God to do the convincing and letting us actually be the witnesses to go and preach like we should, simply and truthfully. I think a person has a right to ask, though, if Jesus is alive and you've met him, what difference has he made in your life? I mean, if you've met him, are you, either you're delusional, or if this God really is everything he said he is, well, then how has your life changed? How has it made a difference? That's the beauty of our testimony. So this is what I want to do as we close this in prayer. The call was, no matter where you go, I want you to preach that gospel. The good news that Jesus died for your sins and mine. And that when he rose again, he offers a brand new life. But before we even make that choice, now if you've made the choice and said yes to Jesus' gift, Do yourself a favor for a moment. Review how he's changed you. What difference? Because usually when I hear the testimony, it's goofy. It's like we glory in those old days and we try to make ourselves look as bad as we could be. And now it's like horrible. I did this and I did. I killed all these people and I like, you know, and then I like did this and then I didn't recycle. And then like, no matter who you are, you try to make yourself a little tougher. And I'd throw my wrappers on the ground. I'd say, ha, 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 ha. And I'd watch trials of life with my friends and say, see, animals kill things, you know. You know and like somewhere and all that. And then it's like, and then I got saved. And that's like the end of the story. And I was like, I don't hear a difference then. Where's the other side of that? The only reason we bring up anything in our past is to show how Jesus has changed that. And you could say, well, you know, in my case, I was a, I was a quiet, angry, brooding, violent man. I wouldn't have talked to you. I wouldn't even have looked at you. Unless, of course, I was, I was hitting you. And in which case, I probably would, I would aim. But the idea of it is, is that when I consider the person that I was to who I am now, I don't recognize that guy anymore. I look at some of you, and I've known you long enough now, to be honest, where I don't recognize the person you were back then. I think an angel. I can't, I can't even just, in the small period of time that we've known her, from the basically Mary Magdalene B.C., you know, to where she is today, it is radical, the difference. I watched Bruno, and I remember Bruno in the early days, man, when it was like every conspiracy theory was on top of him. It was like he was like auditioning for Beautiful Mind, the sequel, you know, and like watching him have this peace. I mean, I look at people like Hugo, man, and I can't, I just, I'm, I'm astounded. I remember the looks he used to give me when he first came in. Man, it was like, you are not convincing me of anything. It's funny because the very things that um, I remember saying in those early days, I hear him say now. And the reason I say that is he does make lives new. We don't even need to bring up Imone where she's been. And the reason I say that is what God does, is he really does change and he changes for good. So there's two calls here. First is, have you accepted this gift of Jesus Christ? If you've accepted this gift of Jesus Christ, then the question is, are you willing, as you go, to share how he changes lives? You don't need a whole lot of illustrations. You should have one, and that's your own. 
when I read in the book of Revelation about how they overcame the Antichrist with the word of their testimony, the blood of the Lamb, the word of their testimony that they didn't love their lives unto death, there is power in that testimony. Because to be honest, you could talk about your great uncle, whatever, and things that happened, but you may not have been there for it. You've just heard the stories. But man, it's different when you're sharing what God's done because your eyes sparkle when you start talking about what the Lord's done with you. And don't you think for a moment that if you weren't one of those crazy people out there that you don't have a testimony, the bottom line is some of you, the greatest testimony is, is that he pulled you out of the pit by never allowing you to fall in. That's the testimony I pray my children have. The question is, how has he changed you? So this is what we're going to do. We're going to go to prayer. But as we go to prayer now, first of all, I'm going to give an opportunity for anybody to say yes to this Jesus. Or maybe it's just that you haven't really walked with him like you should lately and you know today's a great day to just say, God, I give my life back to you. But second, if you are someone that says, all right, Lord, you know you have my life and my challenge today for you is let God develop that testimony. You don't need to embellish. You don't need to polish. You don't need to just... You just need to be honest. But that He, through His Holy Spirit, would show you how He's changing you, how He has changed you, and how He continues to. Hey, look at I've been walking with Jesus since 1984. And I wasn't a baby then. I know that amazes you. Right. And it was three years later, to be honest, where I'd actually fully surrender my life like I should. But there are things in my life that are changing today that, to be honest... I wouldn't have even known about back then because he was moving mountains then and now it's still mountains. I just wouldn't have seen them because there were other ones in my way first. Because he still changes. And he's never stopped. Would you pray with me? God, I want to thank you for this beautiful text. I want to thank you that you've made really clear who we are outside of you, but also who we are with you. That we're wanted and loved and that you've not asked us to clean ourselves up or make ourselves righteous in and of ourselves, but rather <laughs> you've asked for us to surrender. There's where the real victory is, and I want to thank you for that. So I just want to pray, Lord, right now. For every person here, that if there be any who have yet to say yes to Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, to accept this gift, that your Holy Spirit would convince them, just like you promised he would, that today we'd say yes. And if that's you right now, I'm going to pray a prayer. I ask you to listen. And at the end, if you agree, I ask you to give a confident, resounding amen. And what you're saying is, I agree. Let those words be my words. Let that prayer be my prayer. Or maybe today you just want to recommit your life. We'll hear these words. And with it, amen it with me. God in heaven, in and of myself, I'm a sinner. I stand guilty before you and my iniquities separate me from you. My own righteousness is but filthy rags in your sight. And I will not try to make myself right in and of myself because you've offered me a righteousness by sending your son, your only begotten son, Jesus, to die on the cross who volunteered to do so so that all of my crimes could be paid in my heart. And just like scripture promised, he died on that cross, took its shame, and was buried and just like scripture promised, on the third day rose again. And as he rose again, you offer me a brand new life. And I say yes. I say yes to this new life. I say yes to your offer and ask for you to take my life and make it beautiful now. Slay the old of me and make me the new creation you intend. Free, clean, pure, and yours.
I hand you now everything of me. In Jesus' name. And if you agree with that prayer, I ask you to say amen. Lord, I pray for every person here who has said yes to you. We don't want to be like that person showing up at 10 Downey Street or showing up uh, demanding a paycheck but having never really gone out and done what you called us to. We can focus so much on the going that we forget about the part that's really our choice, the part where we preach your gospel, where we actually share. We recognize and we confess to you, Lord, that without the power of your Holy Spirit, we would be weak. But you told us, Jesus, as we see in Acts 1.8, that when the same people who denied that they knew you and fled and deserted you would actually receive your Holy Spirit upon them, that they would be witnesses. And, and, And we pray the same for that great boldness. For your Holy Spirit to come upon us, not so that we can just do some kind of really cool acts, but that we can do the greatest thing. That as we go, that we would share, that we would preach the good news of a God that kills and makes alive, takes the old guilty person and lets them die and raises up a new person, alive and free and pure. So we pray you would send us out of here and as we go, Lord, call us to preach. Make us available. Put us in those places where we could do so and sense your pleasure in it. Let us be faithful servants, good and faithful servants, not wicked and lazy. And so, Lord, we just want to tell you we love you and that we are yours, and thank you for raising from the dead, that we could have new life. So, here we are, we're yours. Use us as you wish. Jesus, in your name, and we say, Amen. Hey, let's, um, I want to say thank you for the privilege of being able to serve the Lord and uh, with you, and to open up the scriptures with you. Let's do this. I'm just going to grab my guitar. The room is small enough. I think we have the song in Christ alone. Uh, why don't we just sing that song together and we'll conclude with that today, if you would, please. <clears throat> now I'll give Daniel another couple of minutes with the kids, cause, although they may have killed him already. I'm only kidding. In Christ alone, my hope is found. You are my light, my strength, my song. This cornerstone, this solid ground, firm from the fiercest drought and storm. What heights of love, what depths of peace, when fears us too. And striving cease My comforter My all in all Here in the love of Christ I stand In Christ alone You took on flesh Fullness of God in hell this fame, this gift of love and righteousness, scorned by the ones you chose to save.
still on that cross, you bled and died. The wrath of God was satisfied, and every sin on you was laid. Here in your death, so Christ, I live. In the ground, your body lay, light of the world in darkness slain, then bursting forth in glorious day. Up from the grave you rose again, and as you stand in victory, since curse has lost its grip on me, for I am yours and you are mine, bought by the precious blood of Christ. And as you stand in victory, since curse has lost its grip on me, for I am yours and you are mine, bought by the precious blood of Christ for I am yours and you are mine bought by the precious blood of Christ thank you God for giving us new life for setting us free and may we live that life now may we reckon the old man dead and live in the newness of life as you call us to. In Jesus' name. Amen. Happy Resurrection Day, friends. God bless you.